The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, UFOs in the skies over Los Angeles and discounts on classic SF from a master. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure, as always, to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. Today, we bring you part one of DJ Butler's conversation with Tim Powers about the new Vickery and Castine novel, Stolen Skies. This is a UFO novel as only Tim Powers could write it, full of intrigue and the sort of secret history story behind the story that he's so well known for. Butler is a huge Powers fan, and the two gentlemen have put together a fascinating interview for all of you to listen to. But first, the news. We're ringing in 2022 with discounts on all Gordon R. Dixon ebooks. For the entire month of January, take $1 off all Bain Gordon R. Dixon novels and story collections. Books like Wolfling, None But Man, Sleepwalker's World, Gremlins Go Home, The Hoka Series, and more. These discounts apply wherever Bane books are sold, but hurry, the sale ends January 31st at midnight. And if you like Gordon R. Dixon's work, might we suggest you check out The Deep Man by Michael Merceau, out now from Bane. And that's it for the news. Hello, uh, this is uh, DJ Butler. I'm here with Tim Powers to talk about his new novel, Stolen Skies. It's out now in hardcover in all your favorite book formats. And of course, DRM free when you buy those at Bain.com. Uh, now, Tim Powers uh, is an author I've been following for a long time. Tim is a highly acclaimed science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, he's won the World Fantasy Award three times, twice for his uh, novels, Last Call and Declare, which are both fantastic, and for his short story collection, The Bible Repairman. Uh, his 1987 novel On Stranger Tides inspired the Monkey Island franchise of video games and was also optioned for adaptation uh, as a Pirates of the Caribbean film. Uh, Powers is famous for secret histories novels using actual documented historical events featuring famous people. Stolen Skies is his 17th book. It's his fourth with Bain. It's, we'll talk about this. I want to talk about this. It's, his, it's a third in a trilogy, actually. Uh, Tim is married and lives in San Bernardino, California, with his uh, wife and cats. Uh, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, um, so on, the, on this point of the trilogy, so it's interesting because I, I think of you as a as a writer of standalone novels and you've written a number of standalone novels but actually you have a couple of series uh and, yeah and, uh there was last call and expiration date and earthquake weather which were a trilogy and then i sort of accidentally wrote a trilogy uh, uh, a sequel with um hide me among the graves mm -hmm. because i was going to write about uh, Christina Rossetti and her brother and their friends. But as I was researching it, I discovered that it involved a whole lot of the characters from a previous novel of mine. John Polidori and et cetera, from The Stress of right. Bird. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, well, I guess you're writing a sequel. Uh, and now you've got a second trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has been uh, a lot of fun. I get to play with Southern California in the present day, which I sort of like to alternate between, you know, 100 years or 200 years ago history and here and now. It's yeah. sort of a variety. Yeah. Or, or run or sort of run them together as of the, as of the kind of 50th anniversary of the summer of love. Uh, right yeah um interesting now now i don't want to i don't want to turn any readers away with that the book does a great job of 
successful explaining everything it needs to explain in terms of past history of the characters. There's no overarching, there's no Dark Lord or battle against Sauron where you need No, in fact, um, these three Bane books, uh, Alternate Roots and Force Perspectives and Stolen Skies, really are individual. Yeah. Uh, it's not like there's a continuing story moving yep. through the three of them. Right. It's it's like a it's a narrative. It's like a private investigator series. It's a series of stories about the same characters. Yeah, I, I sort of was thinking John D. McDonald's Travis McGee books or Peter O'Donnell's uh, Modesty Blaze books. Yeah, but with supernatural. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about those characters. I I have uh, um, I want to I want to talk about names for a minute. Now I run the very big risk of overthinking things, but I but I want to ask. So uh, Sebastian Vickery. This is a very provocative name, I think. This is this is the chosen name of the of the male protagonist. He has other names. This is his vocational name, if you will. Yeah, the the name he's referred to generally. Yeah. Uh, now. Vickery is, I think, awfully reminiscent of the word uh, vicar. Um, and, uh, and, and Sebastian, now, again, I, I could be reading way too deeply here, but Sebastian is a early, I want to say, third or fourth century uh, saint. Uh, he's, the, he's the guy, some of the saints are hard to remember their iconography. He's easy. He's shot full of arrows, right? Um, uh, you're right. You're right. Yes. All the pictures he's... Uh up uh, sort of tied to a tree and a bunch of guys right. with bows are standing around him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he wards off plague. Now, okay, so this is, that's, uh, put that kind of on a shelf over there. Uh, now, Ingrid Castine, this is the other, this is the other character. And um, uh, Castine's an interesting name, right? Castus is Latin chaste, right? Castine is the, the chaste one. Right. Uh, and in fact, these two have a resolutely non-romantic relationship. It's not that there's a, a real bar, but they just right, right, like like they're uh, they're not married to other people in this book, right? Right. Uh, and um, but in fact, there's a there's a bit of dialogue where someone's suggesting to them, okay, go have this conversation. You pretend you're his girlfriend, and she immediately says, "Sister." Yes. Yes. Um... Yeah, I, it seemed, uh, what, evident to have these two, you know, mature, single, attractive characters, opposite sex, be romantically involved. And I thought, let's not. Yeah. Um, for one thing, again, the Modesty Blaze books, which I hope people have read because they're great books. Um, Modesty Blaze and the main main uh, male character Willie Garvin are always very close, but there's never any hint of uh, any kind of sexual romantic <laughs> link between them, and oh. um, it's kind of fun by keeping them separated. You almost get kind of an arcing effect. Uh, because I think people, the readers, and me too, when I was writing them, uh, you think, well, are they ever going to, um, you know, get together? There's no real obstacle for it. Um, yeah. In Stolen, uh, Stolen Skies, uh, Castine is sort of quizzed about that at one point by uh, military uh, naval intelligence officer and she says i don't know uh his his wife committed suicide maybe that sort of uh inclined him against further relationships and my fiance was killed uh during the time i knew vickery maybe that kind of impeded me she sort of expresses puzzlement about why nothing had developed between them yeah and i like to think that uh i left it with that possibility still open yeah 
that's that's interesting that you say that to, to, to me they read uh they read like okay we live in this crazy world where uh the uh the deranged phenomena that people are sort of aware of at the fringes of society are real and dangerous and society needs to be protected from them. And these two unlikely protectors read to me like a priest and a nun. Um, Not and, bad. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, and like, like, okay, you know, this is for this world. Maybe this is what the priest and the nun that we need uh, look like. I love all this. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh and the, I, I guess i don't want to spend all the time talking about names although you've got a pierce plowman in here which is very provocative uh that, that was sort of fun yeah yeah <laughs> um but uh, but i i have to notice her name is ingrid right uh and and this is and i i don't know you know you never know what's deliberate and what is inspired with a writer right but she is very much the one who is in the grid who is connected to the grid uh, she's in the federal agencies, the three-letter. Uh, That's and true. She's not. That's true. She's always a member of that structure. Yeah. Uh, although it's always very dicey. She's always nearly. Yeah. Uh, disqualifying herself, but you're right. She's um, connected to the power structure while he is uh, kind of off the grid, off the grid, yeah. uh, fugitive. Yeah, uh, wanted using assumed names. Right. Um, yeah. Well, let's okay. So let's talk about them. So in uh, in book one, um, and not, not in book one. You can read this as book one. In in the in the first published story about them, uh, alternate routes, which is about uh, it was a fabulous book about ghosts as sort of a generated product of the L.A. freeway system. Right. Um, and about the Minotaur. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the as a result of events in that book, they they enter this sort of uh, world where the Minotaur is and come back. They uh, they both gain an unusual ability that matters to this story. What what's yeah. what is their? It's not exactly a magic power, but but ish, right? What's what's the magic power these two have? Yeah, well, according to your priest nun analogy, it would be their ordination. Um, but what it is, is uh, having uh, fallen out of this here reality into that warp one and then come back, they're no longer securely uh, fastened in the moment, the sequential moments of now. Uh, they can generally voluntarily um, unfocus their view uh, of whatever they're seeing and then sort of the way you used to be able to do with those pictures that were all dots remember and if you look at them right you see a motorcycle or a shark or something mm -hmm. they can look past now and see the recent past uh, as much as an hour maybe and um, when they do that they are blanked out as far as here and now they're looking at half an hour ago. And so they better not do it while they're driving, for example, um, because what they're seeing is not the immediate actual present. And um, I said that when they're in that, what Vickery calls echo vision, mm -hmm. they, they see by infrared as well as some of the visible spectrum because they're not seeing through their actual retinas with the limited um, spectrum of wavelengths that visible light has. They're kind of seeing by a broader spectrum going directly into the, what, cortical something or other, rather than through the retinas. But it's a limited ability. Um, yeah. For one thing, they're handicapped because when they do it, they have to blank out on what's actually happening for the duration of the vision. And they're not, of course, able to do anything in the past that they see, uh, but it's it can be useful when they want to see who was in a restaurant booth half an hour ago, 
mm-hmm. or what papers were on a desk half an hour ago. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a useful plot device in that it could prove very uh, crucial at in some instances, but was always limited. It's it's never a, um, a superpower. Right. And it's a kind of a scrying where they they see the place where they are and they just see it in the very recent past. Right. Yeah. They can uh, see who was parked there half an hour ago. Yeah. But it does allow them, it allows for, for uh, cleverness on their part and also on the part of adversaries. Because on the one hand, they use this, and I won't, some, some spoilers maybe we want to not give, but th- to set up kind of a, uh, a trap, if you will, in the climax to focus attention. Yes. Um, but also some of these, these three-letter agency people, uh, and it's the Office of Naval Intelligence in, in this book uh, specifically, uh, they, uh, they, they realize what casting can do. Uh, they, they, they test their hypothesis. Yeah. By right. uh, by by putting her in places uh, where her right. knowing things that just happened there confirm ah this is, this is what's <laughs> going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, as it develops, naval intelligence, um, unknown to her, actually is aware, right, to an extent of uh, what she can do, and by extension, they can suppose that victory shares this ability since the two of them were involved in some traumatic event what in 2017 I think um and naval intelligence doesn't know exactly what that event was but is able to guess the consequences of it yeah um yeah which which you know it is it is wonderful uh one of the fun aspects of the book is you know uh casting fleeing the grid early and uh, you know fleeing the the naval intelligence uh and then sort of realizing about halfway through the book that that uh you know uh that she's being manipulated uh that yes. fleeing was not a rupture of the plan fleeing was the plan right right uh, you know. yeah it, it's always nice when uh, you think you're rebelling against the bad guys and resisting them and opposing them and then belatedly find out oh, this is exactly what they meant me to do. They yeah. set me up to do this. And so how can I, what action now is going to be something they didn't uh, plan right. for? Because right. what you think of first might be exactly what they knew you would do and allowed for. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, which is which is wonderfully consistent with some of the raw materials here, uh, be- because some of the some of the components that go into this uh, are you know we have we have Greek mythology but we also have crop circles uh, and we have a flatland style uh, encounter with uh, higher dimensions and we have mysterious structures uh, under underground in Los Angeles and we have. Uh, 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 stone circles and we have the flat earth right uh right all of this comes in and so the 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 whole mental world of the story is a little bit um it's a little bit uh you know paranormal it's a little one step to the side of everyday thinking uh and and so a so a it's a wonderful uh plot uh given these materials b i'm curious talk talk to me about how um uh, we're not supposed to talk about process in these interviews, but uh, uh, what the hell? What the hell? Uh, yeah, and, and that's kind of my question, Tim. Is what the hell? I mean, all this stuff. Where is? Do you just read things and and things come to you? How, how do you get to a plot like this? Uh, usually, it's from um, random entertainment reading of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll be reading a biography or a book about uh, UFOs. Um, or anything and I'm just doing it for fun but I'll stumble across something and think wait a sec what was that uh why did he do that uh and of course in the real world the explanation is he made a mistake or he was crazy but I think what if it wasn't a mistake what if he wasn't crazy what if that was a shrewd move actually um and then aha 
I kind of adopt a paranoid schizophrenic frame of mind thinking uh, there's something behind all of this. There's one secret uh, which manifests in these apparently unrelated things uh, and it's supernatural, uh, not just an ordinary mundane conspiracy theory. Um, so I, most of that stuff, uh, my evidence in the book is true. Um, the stuff I say about Area 51, um, the locations of crop circles, they really do seem to, if you look at it, ah, on a flat earther's map, which has Antarctica as the perimeter and the North Pole as the center, these arguably present lines of occurrences of crop circles really are parallel lines. Of course, at which point I start to think maybe the earth is flat. Um, but as much as possible, I try to uh, not contradict, but actually use real evidence. Uh, so ideally, if a reader thought, well, wait, wait, wait what's he I'm gonna check this out. And if they were to check it out, they'd say, my God, it, it's true. Uh, you know, um, in the 1960s at Area 51, they really were doing this, um, et cetera. Um, and no. I'm glad. I'm glad that the Pentagon has not so far made any definitive revelation about what UFOs are, because it's very unlikely to be what I say they are in the book, which has, as you said, uh, to do with kind of a parallel with Flatland. Yeah. Uh, just as in Abbott's book, Flatland, the little characters inhabit simply a plane. Right. And have no idea of above or below. Um, that's analogous to our situation in relation to whatever this higher life form is. Yeah. They see us as limited in the ways that we see flatlanders as limited. Yeah. Yeah, I want to come back to that. That's interesting. Let me touch on UFOs, though, first. So, so, so actually, you're very au courant with your vocabulary. Uh, and, uh, and we talk about, uh, it's not identified, it's un-something, aerial phenomena. It is yeah. identified. Anomalous. Yeah. They don't say UFO anymore. Right. Now, this is anymore, this is really recent, right? Because uh, starting in, uh, apparently... Uh, 2004, uh, the USS Nimitz had upgraded its telemetry and they started noticing things. And, right. and, and then we, in the last, really last four years, started getting a lot of disclosures. And then in 2021, there were finally declassifications where the uh, federal, the US federal government basically said, well, yes, uh, we don't want to say UFOs. Uh, they're not flying objects, they're aerial phenomena. But the potato potato <laughs> uh, yeah. actually it it's good for my book that they're that they drop the word objects yeah and put in phenomena right uh because uh not to give anything away but when i was first hearing about ufos in the last several years uh they're always described as moving at hypersonic speeds and instantly changing direction yeah. without, without slowing down as if they bounced off something. Yeah. And, but they didn't, they, they simply in midair uh, broke off at an angle without decelerating at all. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that can't be real objects. Physical things can't do that. Uh, never mind, even if there was a, uh, a, a driver, a pilot in it, who would simply be yeah, gelled. You know, reduced to his separate atoms in such a course change, a physical thing would come to pieces doing that. 
And so I thought, okay, I bet they're not physical things. Yeah. I bet they are consequences that uh, show up in our flatland context as these uh, metallic looking things darting around impossibly in the sky. But actually that's an artifact as it were of what's really happening when you see those things. Yeah, I, I still don't think it's possible for them to be physical objects doing the things that Navy flyers the say they document see. them doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and that this is a bit of a side, but that the footage of the interviews with those Navy flyers is a little insane because they say things like oh, yeah. uh, off of uh, Norfolk all the time. People see this, and these things tracks they track planes and. And you're afraid to tell people because they're going to treat you like crazy, but everybody knows. Right, uh, right. In fact, luckily, that's breaking down, I think. Yeah. The, uh, the hesitancy of pilots to report these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But maybe as recently as 20 years ago, if you were a pilot and you saw one of these, you just think, I'm not logging it. You know? Right. Uh, I want to get promoted someday. I have a family. Yeah. I'm yeah. shutting my mouth. So yeah, it was um, it was interesting then to figure out well okay. These appearances, these uh, anomalous aerial phenomena, if they aren't what they appear to be, what are they? Yeah. Obviously, some some big significant thing just happened. What was it? Yeah. A and then of course, with my paranoid schizophrenic squint, I have to say. In what air other areas does that mysterious thing manifest itself? Uh, other apparently unconnected areas. And I thought of crop circles yeah. and um, read up extensively on them yeah. and had to come up with a connection between what makes them and whatever the aerial phenomena is. Yeah. And really, not to be um, a conspiracy theorist, but um, you read about crop circles and some of them, you think, okay, now something was going on there. That wasn't three guys dragging a board across a wheat field. Right. Uh, because there are odd little details that a hoaxer wouldn't bother to do like um, red hot little tiny iron pellets yep. scattered at the site. Yeah. Uh, a hoaxer isn't gonna say, you know what? I got a bunch of ball bearings yeah. in the car. Why don't we throw them around? Heat know? them up, magnetize them. <laughs> yeah. Them down, yeah. And I liked um, the idea that maybe accurate that naval intelligence will set up very very convincing crop circles and give it a few days for the public to discover it and get all excited about it and then step in and point out planted unevident uh details that prove it was a hoax yeah and if they find a real crop circle, they quickly rush there right at all. and drop cigarette packs and beer cans and stuff yeah. so that the public will say, oh, well, no, look, it's a hoax, obviously. Yeah, which is which is basically our opening sequence. This is where uh, Ingrid Castine is at the beginning of the book. She's a civilian contractor for the Office of Naval Intelligence, and she's out faking crop circles in southwest England. Right. Well, they um, do have a lot of them. Yeah. It happens all the time. Which is fantastic because that's also, you, you make a connection in the book with stone circles. And of course, that's Stonehenge and Avebury and the White Horse and uh, yeah. a bunch of great and, stuff. And all the way a diagonal line down through Turkey. Yeah. Um, there are stone circles, which were only discovered in the 1920s when people flew airplanes over and said, check it out. Look, there's some kind of ring down there. Um, and I said that a crop circle phenomenon occurred there and the locals knowing it would disperse since it's just in dirt ring, uh, 
to set up a ring of stones to mark where it was. Yeah. And, and all that is accurate. That was part one of DJ Butler's interview with Tim Powers. Tune in next week for part two. And now another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Two. Tyler stretched out on the oddly shaped but surprisingly comfortable couch and intertwined his fingers behind his head. Since getting on the tramp freighter in Manchester 20 hours ago, he hadn't really had a chance to relax. Manchester, New Hampshire, was coming on to being Earth's biggest spaceport, much to everyone's surprise. Unlike Burlington, it had suffered little damage in the war and was central to several major maple production areas. Since Earth was still only trading maple syrup, that meant that was where the traders landed. The Horvath had geeked to giving up the maple syrup, but they were bound and determined to the point of battle to hold on to the heavy metal mines in Russia and South Africa. The Canadian production areas overlapped the maple region, so production from that area was still under negotiation. And they'd raised the subject of the metals Tyler's company was starting to extract from asteroids. Their position was that they owned all heavy metals in the soul system. Since sovereignty can be defined at bottom as might makes right, they were standing on firm legal ground. Tyler's position was that they owned it as long as they could keep it. He intended to end that condition very soon. He decided it was about time to figure out this implant thing and just thought about the Horvath. Instantly, information started flooding in. It wasn't overwhelming, but it was complete and organized more or less as he needed it. He realized that the system was not only responding to his forefront thoughts, but lower-level concepts. The information, since he was mostly worried about the Horvath as a threat, was concentrated around their strategic position in the galactic region, military and industrial capability, and resources. It was neither more than he could absorb, nor was it scattered. He wasn't even sure exactly where the information was coming from. He could see why Earth's firewalls would look a bit like looking through an open window. You just thought about what you wanted to know, and there it was. Wow. Tyler muttered. I've got to get rid of my Google stock. As he examined particular bits of information, more would become accessible. He delved for a while into Horvath reproduction habits and cultural implications. Horvath had two sexes, male, female, more or less corresponding to standard Terran form, even if their basic physiology was completely different. They did look a bit like squids, though. The females laid a single egg in a nest, which was then fertilized by a selected male. Gestation was six months. The nest was kept by the male. The female laid and left. After birth, the young were moved to a creche, where they went through a series of moltings over twenty years and then were released as adults. Males, almost invariably unrelated biologically, did most of the rearing. Robots were replacing them as the Horvath advanced. Child-rearing was not high on the list of Horvath jobs. Interested, he jumped over to the Glatun and received the shock of his life. One of the big questions on Earth about the Glatun was pronouns. Generally, the Glatun were referred to by male pronouns, but it had been noted, quietly, that they didn't seem to have appropriate reproductive parts. And they responded perfectly well to neutral gender terms such as it. What he found out quickly was that they were all three. Or rather, the glatun with which people dealt were hosts to both. Male and female glatun were non-sentient parasites that existed within a brood pouch on the Glatun's sentient neuters. 
more or less on command, they would reproduce, the female releasing an egg and the male fertilizing it. Then the offspring would be raised in the pouch. If it was male or female, it would stay there, more or less turned off, until a ceremony where it would be transferred to a young neuter. If a neuter, it would be raised to a certain size, released from the pouch, then raised to adulthood by its parent neuter. Okay, that's bizarre, Tyler muttered. He decided to examine the glatun a bit more and received another shock. The glatun were one of the older species in the area, having been contacted by the ormitur through the new glatun gate nearly 30,000 years ago. At the time, there were very few Sofont races in the immediate star systems, and over a period of about 6,000 years, the Glatun had spread out and absorbed the 32 systems that made up the Glatun Federation. Along the way, they had encountered four other Sofont races and more or less absorbed them into the Federation. They also had encountered some that resisted absorption, but had become trade partners. At this point, the Glatun Federation sat as the nexus of trade between 14 different races, some of them having, in turn, expanded widely. They were rich even by galactic standards, and with riches came problems. They had a permanent, unemployed underclass approaching 30%. Their military was paltry for their size, absorbing less than 0.03% of their GDP, and their trade imbalance was becoming astronomical. They're eating their seed corn, Tyler muttered. You can afford to be the French if you've got a great big buddy to take care of you, but... Tyler took a look at their strategic situation and nearly had a heart attack. They were bordered by nine expansionistic groups. Of course, Earth and the Horvath, neither actually strategically dangerous, were included. But the Rangora, Ogut, Barche and Ananankawamor each had military forces that, in sheer number, dwarfed the Glatun. They were all technologically inferior, but quantity has a quality of its own, Tyler muttered. He wasn't sure that Earth hadn't hitched itself to a falling star. Speaking of military technology, Primary ship weapons were fusion-pumped visible-light X-ray and gamma-ray lasers. Secondary weapons were high-acceleration missiles using either kinetic or fusion-pumped laser warheads. A relatively new weapon on the scene was the gravity gun, which could disrupt ships' shields and cause massive damage. However, it was relatively short-range and of limited utility. It also required truly massive amounts of power, so it was only found in capital ships. No unobtainium, Tyler said. Good. And speaking of power and drive systems... He got confused almost immediately. The primary power system was a helium-3 driven... Well, it was a matter of conversion plant, not a fusion plant still required HE3 to keep it from producing radiation. It converted matter to plasma and electricity, and then it did something with the plasma and got more electricity and less plasma, somehow converting the neutrons and protons of the plasma to electrons? How? The last of the plasma could be used for Tyler realized his basic science background was kicking out information that was contradictory to background and gave up. Let the big brains figure it out. But it needed, aha, heavy metals, primarily in the platinum group. That was the reason the Horvath were so hot for platinums. The power systems were thick spheres composed entirely of metals from the platinum groups. The drive system of a freighter the size of Watheitz was half a terawatt? That couldn't be right. He checked. That was right. 
Earth produced four terawatts a year of power worldwide. The entire eastern U.S. power grid could be driven by a ball of osmium six feet across. Inertial control was induced by spinning plates of... Brain lock. Brain lock. These people obviously had some theory that contradicted most of what he thought he knew. The grav plates looked doable. They required some exotic metals, but that was what orbital mining was for. Scratch that. Basically, beryllium bronze with a touch of lanthanides and platinums. Pretty much all of that was available on Earth. You needed grav plates to make grav plates, though. How'd somebody make the first ones? The drive system was a function of grav plates. Drives generated presser beams? That pushed on what? Generated mass points? S.A.N. check, Tyler muttered, sitting up and pulling out of the welter of information. I feel like the World War II Air Force general that said the jets couldn't work because they didn't have anything to push. I think these guys have rediscovered Newton's ether. I need to get somebody smarter than me a set of plants and some free time. For right now, though, what he wanted was a ship. The problem being that he'd need a captain and an engineer. And one ship wasn't going to do. What he needed was Boeing able to make ships. He'd brought a laptop with 400 petabytes of Atacirc installed. Surely that would be enough to fill in the basics. Barely. And he needed a faber to make grav plates so you could make a larger factory to make bigger grav plates. And he was going to need people who actually understood this stuff. And a ship drive. They looked tough to make. Did this place have eBay? He spotted a reference in the grav plate system information to a vendor called Pangalactic Neocow, which produced grav fabbers and probed on that. Pangalactic Neocow! Pangalactic Neocow! Pangalactic Neocow! Pangalactic Neocow! Ow! Tyler muttered. The answer was, yes, you could go shopping, if you could figure out how to ignore the commercials. Flashing banner ads on a screen were bad enough. Flashing screaming banner ads in your brain were another matter. He just rode the tide for a while, trying not to whimper. Right, he said, pulling out of the ad flood. I'm gonna need more blood sugar to handle this. AI? Mr. Vernon, a voice said. Do you have a name that is less than five syllables? You may call me Isna, Mr. Vernon. Isna, I had some Terra foodstuffs sent along, Tyler said. Is the server bot really programmed to produce Terran foods, and what's available? Over 628,000 recipes have been obtained from the Terran information net, Isna said. With the available foodstuffs using substitutions, 247,000 possible combinations are available. I didn't bring that large a range of materials, Tyler protested. Yes, you did, Isna said. You even brought a full range of spices. Damn, Tyler said, thinking about it. He delegated the foodstuffs to one of his assistants. Find a chef and tell him to send along everything he'd want if he was going to be stuck on an alien planet for three months. Do you think the bot could lower itself to doing some spaghetti? We'll start there. There are 6,000 spaghetti with meat sauce, Tyler said. 400 spaghetti with meat sauce, Tyler said, his mouth starting to salivate. Bit more tangy than sweet, heavy on the meat, Heavy on the oregano. Pick a recipe that's along those lines. Thin spaghetti noodles, Chianti or the closest approximation to a company, and can I get a Coke? Your supply of Coca-Cola, since it is toxic to Glatun Systems, is still in customs hold. It should be released in a few days' time. Tea. Earl Grey. Hot. Coming right up. There was a ding, and a compartment on the wall opened. There was a steaming cup of tea in it. 
sugar, cream, lemon, lime, orange, just sugar, please, Tyler said. One teaspoon to each five ounces. That is very close to solubility, the AI pointed out. There was a rushing sound and the teacup floated out of the compartment. Your tea, sir. Thank you, Tyler said, taking the cup. It was a tiny little thing. Next time, could you put it in a bigger mug? Say about 16 ounces. I drink this stuff by the gallon, but gallons are hard to hold. Of course, sir, the AI said. Your spaghetti is being prepared. The robo-chef assumed standard accompaniments. A balanced diet seems to be important to maintaining regularity of the Terran digestive tract and balance of trace nutrients. Um, Tyler said. Okay, just the spaghetti would have been fine. I'll eat an apple or something. Are there apples? Yes, sir, the AI said. Would you like an apple? Not right now, Tyler said. I'm just going to pick around on the net for a bit. I'll leave you alone then. Oh, Tyler said, looking at his cup. And I need another cup, mug, of tea. And maybe some bottles of water to just have around. Coming right up. Tyler lay back down and, with more information, started to ponder on the central subject that had been occupying his mind ever since the end of the aborted maple syrup war. How to get the Terran system up to Glatun standards in the shortest possible period. Rome wasn't built in a day. This was most certainly true, but part of that was that Rome spent much of its history getting hammered in wars. Wars are a waste. There were times when war was the only practical answer. There were things worth fighting and dying for, but infrastructure didn't get built during wars. While the Glatun were still sufficiently interested in the Terran system to keep the Horvath off Terra's back, mostly, Terra needed to build orbital infrastructure fast. The problems were immense. All of Terra's industry was Earth-side. Just being able to smelt metal in space wasn't enough. There were way too many things that had to get made in places like China and Bangladesh. Eventually, systems would have to be self-supporting off-planet. Building all that infrastructure, though, was going to mean, in the meantime, getting stuff out of the gravity well, which meant ships. Then there was the problem of doing anything in space. Space was an unforgiving bitch. And to do all the work that was going to need doing meant that taking six months to practice a five-minute spacewalk was right out. Spacesuits. He'd completely forgotten the problem of spacesuits. Then there was the personnel problem. Tyler had gone on a hiring binge before leaving Earth. He figured that anything that was normal and regular, you could get MBAs and PhDs to handle. He was only interested in the new and odd. Once it was making money, there were little people to handle it, which was why he no longer had to go tap maple syrup himself. But doing stuff in space was going to require people with special abilities and training, of which there were maybe two or three hundred on the whole planet. Much of the work could be done with robots, but robots couldn't think their way out of new problems. Tyler was going to need thousands of people handling tens of thousands of robots, and they were going to have to be people who could think on their feet, people who understood space without being afraid of it. They didn't need PhDs. He could get them trained in the basics pretty easily using implant technology. They just needed to be smart and able to handle implants, which meant people familiar with information technology. The last problem being that even the solar array system was costing him like crazy to set up and run. He had a lot of money, but eventually it was going to run out. Getting a couple of thousand people who were what NASA would consider qualified and thus extremely expensive was just out. Where in hell am I going to get a couple of thousand geeks 
willing to work in dangerous and, at least at first, horrible conditions for low pay just to be able to work in space. Put that way, the answer was simple. Your spaghetti, sir, Isna said. It smelled wonderful and came with an attractive selection of grilled mixed vegetables and a bottle of wine, one glass already poured. Ah, Tyler said, ambrosia. He tucked up to the table and had a taste. I have limited experience dealing with human facial expressions, Isna said. But from your reaction, this was not the most perfect gustatory experience possible. Isna, Tyler said as soon as he'd finished the glass of wine, make a note to the chef. Bit lighter on the cayenne in the future, especially if he's using a hot style of dried tomato. And by a bit lighter, I mean none. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler for being our guest interviewer today. And praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tim Powers. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>